Luke uh, chapter 20, starting in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all uh, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. And the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so thankful again to be in your house to uh, worship you and to pray, Lord, to you, to read scripture, to pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, to, to then have an opportunity to give, Lord, to show our thankfulness for our pardon. But now, Lord, as we enter this time of teaching, as we learn from your word, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. We desperately need to hear from you. Did you, we do not need to hear from Matt or from some person or from some man. We need to hear from you, Lord, that you would speak through me, Lord, and speak to your people. Lord, we, we have so many things to be thankful for. We're thankful, Lord, that for the opportunity to do the Fall Fest this year. And Lord, I pray that that would go well. I pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to interact with people, to be able to be proclaimers of the gospel on Franklin Street this week. Lord, we, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, Lord, we, and we pray for our brothers and sisters in Nepal. We pray for our brothers and sisters across the world, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to grow your church, you would continue to grow your kingdom, and Lord, I pray that you would bring us closer together as your people, Lord, that we be more reliant on your word, that we be more reliant on one another, and more dependent on you. Lord, we, we pray for those who are out because they are sick, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would bring healing to them. We pray for, for Nathan Ice, who has a fever, Lord. I pray that you would, that fever that would go down this weekend, uh, that, 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 that uh, Denton and Kaylee can, can work this week and not to be held back by a sick child, Lord. We pray for my grandfather, who has been uh, dealing with some, some bladder issues, Lord. I pray for him as well. Lord, I just pray for all those in our church that are struggling, that need your love, they need your peace, they need your church, Lord. I pray that our church would come around them and care for them and support them. Lord, we love you. We praise for you. We pray. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, the title of this sermon is "Jesus, the Founder of a New Age." Jesus, the Founder of a New Age, and and with that title, uh, think of kind of like any uh, Steve Jobs, uh, Bill Gates, any of these kind of founders of of corporations or or titans of new technologies. And we give a lot of these, these, uh, these people, these individuals, a lot of press. Books are written about them and about their lives, how significant and influential they were in the world. And you think about all the different things that have, that have, we would say, moments 
in history that changed the world, that brought in a new age. Uh, things like the printing press, right? The printing press, if you want to talk about the Refor Reformation, the Reformation really got its start with the printing press, that Luther was able to spread his, his ideas and his views through the printing press, that normal people were able to read them, and that carried the movement. You think of, of the light bulb, right? Edison and the others who helped create the light bulb, how that changed the way that we... Because think about this, before the light bulb, you couldn't work at night. You couldn't read at night, right? But because of the light bulb, it, people were able to work longer and able to maybe potentially accomplish more things. Uh, we think of penicillin and other medicines that were able to be available in the, in the, kind of the turn of the 20th century. Think of the moon landing, right? We landed on the moon. Uh, how significant that was, like that, that man was able to travel across the stars and land on the moon. There was a, a moment in history that people would say changed the world, that brought in a new age. And technology changed so, so much in, in the end of the 1960s, the, the, kind of the ushering of the personal computer. All of this was significant because of the moon landing. We think of 9-11 of and what happened on that day and how that changed the world. We think of, of the iPhone. I remember I was in Sweden when the iPhone got, came out, and there was a, a, a guy that we were playing poker with who had an iPhone, that he went to, I think, Singapore or Hong Kong and came back with an iPhone, and how our, our world has been changed because of the iPhone for the better and for the worst. These are all kind of things, these are technologies, and certain people helped to usher in this, these new ages, right? Think of now, we think of the electric car and the autonomous car. Think about the, what, what's going to happen when you're no longer driving anymore. Isn't that weird? We, we spend a lot of our, I know if you're a mom here, you drive your kids around all over town. Think about not doing, doing that anymore, potentially. It's crazy how certain technologies, and people think with new technology starts a new age, that a new age is ushered in when a technology is introduced to the public. Present some context for our passage this morning, and uh, Pastor didn't preach very well on, uh, on on taxes and giving to Caesar what is Caesar, and kind of bringing in this idea, this this, this issue that throughout this these sections, a lot of these passages we've preached through, there's a lot of these the interactions between the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem and Jesus, and when it really kind of started when Jesus cleansed the temple, and how significant that was, and how angry they were when Jesus walks in or struts, let's say he strutted into the temple, and he accomplished what he accomplished, and he turned the tables and, and made a scene and told them that this is the Father's house, this is my Father's house, and it should not be treated like a den of robbers. And other interactions and, and issues. And every time that they have confronted Jesus with an issue, Jesus, as Pastor didn't preach last week, he roasts them. Boom, roasted. He shames them. And not only does he shame them, he shames them publicly. I mean, people are watching, they're seeing Jesus as these Jewish leaders straight up to Jesus and say, all right, we have something we can bring before him. We're going to try to shame him in front of the public. They continue to lose. In a shame-honored culture, these men have been shamed over and over and over again by Jesus. And they want their honor back. They want it back bad. 
because they've been embarrassed. They've been humiliated by Jesus to the public. People have watched Jesus basically roast them over after time after time. And so they're desiring to recapture their honor. And now the new group that comes to confront Jesus are the Sadducees. Let me kind of give you a, a major point here. Here's the main point. Are you a person of the old age, which is humiliated by Christ, or the new age, which is initiated by Christ or in Christ? Are you a person of the old age, which is humiliated, humiliated by Christ, or the new age, which is initiated by Christ? Point number one is, or uh, whatever way you're, uh, the way that I kind of structure this is point A, uh, the final contest of, for honor, the final contest for honor. Really, the way if you want to think about this is like a duel. What is a duel? The duels were, uh, were done a long time ago. They're, they've been illegal for a while, but the aristocrats or the wealthy of society would have these, these affairs of honor, these duels. You know, back in the medieval times, it was by sword. But then, like, toward the, the 17th and 18th century, we think of Hamilton and Burr, it was with guns, right? It was an affair of honor to gain satisfaction, to restore one's honor. If you have been humiliated or shamed by someone, you would then have a duel to regain or recapture your honor. The purpose was not to kill the other person, but to humiliate and shame them before other people to therefore you can recapture your honor. The reason why, you know, Hamilton and Burr is, you know, obviously the, 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 the musical on Broadway has made that, that duel famous again. But there, if, you, if you don't understand what led to that, that duel is that Hamilton basically defamed Burr's character during Burr's 1805 run for governor of New York. He said publicly in the newspaper, he said, about Burr, that he was a dangerous man who ought not to be trusted with the reins of the government. He wrote that publicly. And Burr saw that as a defamation of his character, and he wanted his honor back. That's why he, he uh, basically requested or uh, threatened, I'm not sure where the terminology, he, he asked Burr, Hamilton that for a duel. He wants a duel to regain his honor because he had been shamed by Hamilton. It was, again, a duel was an affair of honor. It wasn't, a, a, it wasn't about revenge or to kill. It was about regaining your honor. And really, the, this is a, a, the, one of the last times where Jesus and the Jewish leaders were confronted against one another, and they came to Jesus, and this was an affair of honor. They're, they've been shamed by Christ by, in the public, and they want their honor back. And this issue that they bring up to Jesus had to do with the resurrection. The Sadducees are those who deny that there is a resurrection. Actually, uh, uh, Luke helps us a little bit with this detail. If you go to Acts chapter 23, verse 7 through 8, you kind of get more details about the Sadducees' views and their theology and their beliefs. Acts 23, 7 through 8. And when he had said this, uh, and when he had said this, a dissension rode between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So there was a separation. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They kind of believed in a, in a sense that Whatever God did, blessings and judgments, happened in the present life. It didn't happen in the afterlife. 
So they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife. And so what is the Jewish view on the resurrection? Obviously, unfortunately, the Sadducees uh, uh, only really held that the five first books of the Bible are the only ones that really have true authority over the Jewish people. And that's where their beliefs came from, was the Pentateuch, so it's Genesis through Deuteronomy. Um, and so because there was no resurrection uh, addressed in those five books, they didn't believe it. Even though, if you go to Daniel chapter 12, Daniel actually mentions the resurrection of the dead. Daniel 12, 1 through 2. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has, chain, has charge of, of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never had been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That seems like a resurrection to me. But the, the, the Sadducees did not hold that Daniel was the, was the ultimate authority over the people, only the first five books of the Bible, so Genesis through Deuteronomy. Even though Isaiah 26, verse 19, also mentions a resurrection, they also did not hold that passage to have authority over their views. Really, um, even though these passages are there in the Old Testament, it's not like the Old Testament talks about the resurrection as extensively as the new. And during the second temple period, this is the time of, 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 the, of the second temple after the, the temple of Solomon had been destroyed, uh, the temple that was built during Haggai and the, uh, the prophets that came uh, from Babylon, from Persia, who came back to the, new world, to the, new, the land and built the temple. There is this view of the resurrection and the afterlife that started to become more common and became more the majority view amongst the Jewish people. And there was an increased interest in a future resurrection and judgment. Why? Because they were exiled, they were conquered by foreign nations. Even after they came back to the land, they were then conquered by the Greeks and conquered by the Romans. And so they desperately looked out for and desired for God to judge the wicked and to restore the righteous and the people. So there was a lot of talk about the resurrection of the dead and the judgment of God. And so they really, uh, this idea of how is God going to conquer evil was a very much a conversation amongst the Jewish people. And so they, the Sadducees believed that God would handle that in the present life, where many more Jews, like the Pharisees, believed that it would come at the end of days. The Sadducees were, again, they were students of Moses. They, they held to a, the Pentateuch, the first five books. They saw that as the sole authority and the basis of their belief. And you think, well, I, it's kind of surprising that they didn't believe in the resurrection. Well, there are many people today who claim to be Christians who do not hold to a literal resurrection. Actually, let me give you a, a, a very contemporary example. Senator Raphael uh, Mornock, who is now the current and, uh, senator of Georgia, who, uh, I don't know if you know this, was a professor at a liberal seminary, said the, he says this, the meaning of Easter is more than transcendent than the, I'm sorry, the meaning of Easter is more, more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you are a Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. That is a non-literal resurrection view. It's actually quite common amongst liberal theologians who want to hold that the resurrection of Christ actually never happened and that we can actually say we are literally raised from the dead 
through our liberation. We're liberated from the social issues of our world, that we can be liberated by the example or the legend or the myth of Jesus raising from the dead. So this is a view of, the, of not believing in the resurrection is not something just the Sadducees had held. This is something that is even current today. So basically, they, they, they confront Jesus. They have this topic they want to discuss. They want to talk about the resurrection. The contest begin. They come and ask him a question. The duel, the contest, they devise a cunning plan to shame Christ in public to win back their honor from the public. They're, they're, they're seeking to regain their honor. And they will mock his view of the resurrection to regain their honor and status before the people. However, they've initiated a contest that they have no hope of winning. They, they don't realize, they don't, they don't, they're not thinking uh, strong enough or, or carefully enough about who they're confronting with this question. And really, they're not doing this as those who want to learn more from Jesus. They are doing this to mock him, to shame him, to humiliate him before the public. So they initiate this contest. And we know that they have no hope of winning. We, we know from Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. All things were created through him and for him. In him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. That's who they confront. The one who has all the fullness of God. Probably not a wise decision. The world's confrontation with the church will end the same way that it ends with the Sadducees with Jesus. Our Lord and Savior will reign. He is the name above all names. And those who are in Jesus, those who put their trust in Christ, are joined in that conquering, that he is the one above all things. His body, which is the church, will, all, will never be conquered or shamed or humiliated by the world, but that we will always come out victorious because we are in Christ. So be encouraged. And we say that, with, we say that with, with humility and also prayer for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and Nepal and other places that no one, I don't care if you're the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, whomever, you're not going to conquer Christ's church. You will be shamed, you'll be humiliated, and the church will receive its honor. Jesus, and this side of the world, are, uh, this is the old age, and, and, and Christ is the initiation of the new age. This contest is an illustration of this macro contest that will end in the same way. The old age's mockery and schemes will be humiliated. Let me show you from this story how the world in the old age will be humiliated. This is a microcosm. I mean, this is a micro of the larger story which God is going to humiliate the old age in the world through Christ. And if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, if you put your faith in Christ, you join in that victory. So the Pharisees, I mean, the Sadducees have this story they want to tell and then present a question through that story. So I call this the one bride for seven brothers. There is a Western movie that's called Seven Bride for Seven Brothers. Uh, I think it's a musical. I'm not really into Westerns. If you're into Westerns, that's awesome. I know Denton likes Westerns. I'm not into Westerns all that much. Uh, but I remember this one, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Well, this is the one bride for seven brothers. And so they come to Jesus as a, uh, he's a they say, teacher, 
which, you know, you, your kind of red flags go off immediately. They don't call him Lord. They don't call him Master. Just a teacher. You're a teacher. And we address you as such. And they say, Moses wrote for us. And, and, and he, he, they kind of dispel this, this, this story. Go back here. Now, there were seven brothers. I'm sorry, the teacher Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Basically, the law, this is in Deuteronomy, uh, and if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must, the brother must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is called the Levirate, the Levirate law, L-E-V-I. R-A-T-E, deliberate law, that when a brother has married a wife and she dies, I mean, if he dies, that the second brother is required by law to marry the wife, marry the widow. He must. This is in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. If you have a Bible and you open up Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, I'm going to read this. If a brother dwells together... And one of them dies and has no law, no son. The wife of the dead man should not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. If the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses uh, to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel, and he will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. If he persists and says, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. And he shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. It's pretty intense. What's important I want you to kind of indicate here, it was the duty and they were required to do this. It wasn't like you were given the choice. You were required to do this. And if you didn't, you were shamed publicly. If you don't, if you don't marry your brother's wife, you pull off his sandals and spit in his face if he refuses. Which helps us to even understand another story, Ruth chapter 2, when Naomi and Ruth's husbands died, they needed a, 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 someone to redeem them. And that, how that would be done is the closest relative was, was required to marry the widow if they were not married. And so in that story, Boaz married, Naomi, uh, married Ruth to then be able to take care of and provide for Naomi and Ruth, and then provided a son to Ruth. We understand that story as Boaz, basically as the kin redeemer, that he, he redeemed Naomi and, his, and, and her family, because if, if he did not provide for them, they would have starved and would have died and had no children to carry on the name. It was a responsibility for the sake of the dead, and it was required by Jewish law to fulfill this duty. Paul, Moses writes this law. And it was inspired by God. Each brother has married the woman and died, and each brother failed to produce a child. And so the Sadducees present this absurd, absurd story that what if 
you had a woman who married a man, and, she, and he died, and he had seven, six other brothers, and they all married her, and then they all died, no children, and then who gets to, who has the woman, who marries the woman in the next life? This is an argument to absurdity. It's a reduction to absurdity. The, let me give an example. The earth cannot be flat, otherwise we would, fall, we would find people falling off the edge. That is a reduction of, of, of absurdity. It's an argument to absurdity. The reason why the world isn't flat is because it, what if then we would see people falling off the earth? There could be no re- resurrection. Otherwise, which of these seven brothers will be married to this woman? It's a mockery. It's a joke. They're laughing at Christ. Logistically, this is the problem with the resurrection and the family. Wh- who would marry the woman? Of course, they're assuming, assuming what? That the afterlife and the resurrection will be continuation of this life. This life, the earth, earthly obligations, the family duties, the raising of children. If that is true, the resurrection is ridiculous. They're assuming that the afterlife and the resurrection, that life will be exactly like it was before. And that's where they made their mistake. Here's the third point. Attributes of this age. This age equals the old, old age. And Jesus says in verse 34, as he answers them, sons of the old age, what are the sons of the old age doing? They're marrying or given in marriage. There's obligations that are required in this age. You're required to marry. You're required to give, be give, giving daughters to marriage. There's an obligation. Men must take, uh, the man must take the widow. The brother must raise up offsprings for his brother. The laws and duties established because of the consequence of sin, which is death. Because of death, because women are left as widows, and how are they to be cared for, the law was written because of death. If there was no death, there would be no issues with widows, and brothers wouldn't have to marry their brother's wife. Death, the consequence of sin, is the problem. That's why the law and duty was established. Verse 36, for they cannot die anymore in the new age. The old age is defined by mainly by death. And the laws were necessary in a world where all inevitably die. It's not needed pre-fall in the garden. Adam and Eve were created to live. They didn't, God didn't have to give them a law. Well, if Adam were to die, uh, then Eve would need to be taken care of by the giraffes. Like, that was never needed. That law was not needed. Why? Because there was no death. There's no issue in the garden with death. The inevitability of death, the caring for widows, the caring for orphans, the longevity of the family and the nation. Do you realize that when, uh, when children are not born in a country, the economic growth of a country goes down? There's a reason why China changed their one-child policy is because their population growth is declining, and they're, they're actually their economic growth is declining, and so now they're allowing women to have more children. It's an economic factor. The reason is, is that you have two children to replace yourself, and then you add one more. And that is a good economic structure. That's why the U.S. government gives you tax benefits for children, because they recognize that there's, econ- there's e- uh, economic benefits with more children in the country. And so you, you do this, you create these laws, caring for orphans, caring for widows, hoping for the longevity of a family and a nation because of death. We see also in the old age, these attributes of the old age, that, that we are lower than angels. We're also disconnected from God. 
because of death, because of the old age. Even, you know, I, 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 the passage is fascinating, the First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 33 and 34, where, where Paul talks very openly about marriage. This is a confusing passage. It's, it seems like Paul is saying, don't get married. It's better to not be married. Why would people want to be married? And he has a particular reason why he states it. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 33. But the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife. And his interests are divided in the unmarried, or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things and how to please her husband. Paul says it's not a sin to get married, but he's just quoting the obvious, is that when you are married, when you're, when you're, you're divided in your attention, you're, you're less able to devote yourself completely to the Lord. You're anxious about worldly things. You're, you want to care for your wife. You want to care for your husband. You want to please them. You want to please your children. You want to take care of them. If you have family members that are sick, what do you usually do? You invite them to live in your home and you take care of them. What, are your, what is happening is a good thing, but your attention is divided. Even in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided de- devotion to the Lord. He, he, he clearly is stating that getting married, there is a restraint. There is an, a, an obligation. There is a responsibility that is required. It devotes your devotion to the Lord. The present form of this world is passing away. Death, pain and suffering that comes from death, that's why, why put your hope in a fading world? And because of death, because of pain and suffering that comes from death, we are then required and obligated to do things that cause restraint. Or maybe you like the Sadducees and believe that what you see is what you get, so take and guard. However, you're not free from restrictions. Even if you have all the money in the world, what do you have to do? You have to pay taxes. There's losses and then there's death. This is the attribute of the old age, is death. And all the laws and all the duties that follow because of death. The fourth point is this, the attributes of the age to come. And Jesus kind of puts these up against one another and says, you are the sons of the old age, Mary, and are concerned about marriage and concerned about marriage laws and concerned about how to take care of and how to continue your family name and how to pass on inheritance and these type of things. These are issues of the old age. And these are issues of the old age because there's death in the old age. Here's the attributes of the age to come. The new age. The new age which is defined by the resurrection of the dead. And to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given into marriage. There's a renewal of life. There's a, uh, the perishable is becoming the imperishable, the weak becoming strong and powerful. Christ is the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. The new age is defined by the resurrection of the dead in Christ to life, not by death. And it's initiated in Christ. Christ is the firstborn of the dead, Colossians chapter 1 and Revelation 1. He conquered death and, 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 and got the new age in motion. It's because of Christ's resurrection that the new age has been issued into the world. That we as Christians and followers of Christ are people of life, not of death, because of Christ's conquering of death. Therefore, marriage 
And the new age is unnecessary. You can't die anymore. Jesus says the reason why marriage is not necessary in the new age is because there is no more death. Therefore, no duty, no care for, or raising up of children is required. No duty to multiply. No need for economic growth. Let me read Revelation 21, 3 through 4. Revelation 21, 3 through 4. Behold, the dwelling of place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We, that is our future, that is our destiny, is life everlasting. In the sons of God, we are now equal to angels, he says. We're immortal. We, we share the glory and beauty that the angels express. Revelation 21, 5 through 7, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all, thing new, all, all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. What's important is being stated here is that there are no more any more responsibilities or duties or obligations. We are completely devoted to the Lord in the new age. Completely. And that may seem strange to you. Why? Because we live in an age where that is not true. It's not true. We are then going to an age where that is true. We will be completely devoted to the Lord. There will be no division of our hearts or passions. Our passions will be completely focused and devoted to Christ Jesus for eternity. We will live for him completely. Christ humiliates the old age, initiates the new age through his death and resurrection. The most important moment in history is when Christ died on the cross and rose again from the dead. It displays the new age, that we are now creatures of the new age because of our unity in Christ. If you want to know the new world, the new age is coming. Just look to the church and to its believers, to its Christians, to its members. We are displays of the new age. We are creatures of the new age. And here's the last point. The new age is rooted in God's eternal nature. Jesus really kind of shames them here in this, this ending portion of this passage. They bring this issue to him, and he basically states, well, well, that makes sense that you would bring this question because you're people of the old age, but with the new age, there is no marriage. There is no those given to marriage. We are sons of the resurrection. We are sons of God, and there is no more death. But then he continues, and this is where it gets really quite, quite something. He says that in verse 37, but the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live in him. What passage is he using against them is Exodus chapter 3. And what part of the section of the Bible is that in? The book's written by Moses. He's using the things that they define by their belief and using it against them and shaming them again in front of the public. The evidence of the resurrection, even Moses shows that there's evidence of the resurrection because God is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. 
he roots the the authority or the, 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 the he roots the, the view and the and the belief of the resurrection in the nature of God. That God is an unchanging God. He is the God of the living. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, while they are physically dead, they will not be eternally dead. He even says in that same passage, he says this to Moses, that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says that the God, because basically Abraham, Moses says, well, what should I tell them? That you're the God of your fathers. What more should I give them? What name can I give them? And he says, I am has sent me to you. I am, I am the eternal God. God is not worshipped by the dead, but by the living. He is the eternal God, and he dwells forever with his people. Your eternal life, your resurrection uh, from the dead to life, which was initiated by Christ, is secure in the nature of God, which is unchanging and eternal. If you want to say, well, how do I know that uh, I, will ra- I will live for eternity? Because God is not worshipped by the dead. He is worshipped by the living. It is rooted in God's nature. You were created, saved to live for him. You were not created and saved to die and sit in a grave. You were saved to worship him and to live with him. This is your eternal destiny, a destiny of eternal devotion to God. You were saved to worship and adore God forever and to be completely focused on that alone. There is no more responsibilities. There is no more duties. There is no more obligation. There are no more families to take care of or children to take care of. Your complete devotion is to God, completely. Your identity is not in being a mother or a father or a worker. Your identity is to be a worshiper of God, and that will be your eternal destiny. So you might as well think about that now, what your true identity is. It's not, in the, it's not in your responsibilities and your obligations. It's in your worship of God. So you have to ask yourself, your investment of your time and your money and your talents and your energies, we all have responsibilities, yes. We have work. We have families. We have bodies to take care of. If you're a child of a new age, at le- what level are you devoted to the eternal God? Those things above will not define your eternal existence. Time to start investing in the things of the new age because your eternity is not going to be spent raising children. Your eternity eternity is not going to be about spending time with your husband or your wife. Your eternal destiny is to worship and serve the living God forever. So you want to ask yourself the question, are you investing at all in that activity? These are the things that you, this is, this is the things you should do. This is what we'll be doing for eternity, knowing God. We will have eternity to know and discover who God is. We'll have an eternity of worshiping God. We'll have an eternity of loving one another, all as children of God, enjoying him and his creation for eternity. If you are someone who lives by the old age, You're living by the old age. You define yourself by what is considered satisfactory in the old age, which is talents, accomplishments, degrees, whatever that is. Money, power, authority, recommendations, your networks. Maybe maybe your identity is in your family and being a husband or a wife or raising children. Or maybe it's in having a certain house or a certain car or whatever it is. Those are the things of the old age, and they're fading away. 
I, 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 I skip this phrase, and you're probably wondering, Matt, why did you skip this phrase? This is probably the most important phrase of this entire pasture, pas- passage, and you haven't even talked about it once. He says here in verse 34, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, the new age, and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Christ initiated the new age. Only in him will you be considered worthy to attain the new age. It's not by works. It's not achieving some feat. It is only in faith in Christ. I love Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, where Paul focuses our attention that everything that is to be celebrated and to be experienced in the Christian faith is in Christ. It's in him. In him alone you will be qualified to obtain to this new age. That list that defines the old age, the talent, the family, the money, the materials, all of those things, and you just continue to add to that list, those things have no weight. They have no value in the old age. None. You cannot present your doctorate degree from wherever you went to. Southern Seminary, your PhD document. You can bring that to God and say, this qualifies me, right? And he will say, I never knew you. This has no value here. It's better in the trash or burned in the fire. You can say, well, look at, look at my family and all the, the children that I had and all the accomplishments I've had. That should be enough. And he's going to say, that has no value here. It is rubbish here. You're going to say, well, look at all my money and all the things that I did for people and all the charities I started. And he's going to say, that has no weight. It has no value here. And it's going to go in the fire. That's the things of the old age. It has no value. No weight. So what's it going to be? Are you going to be a person of the old age? Are you going to be a person of the new age? Are you going to be part of the age that Christ shames and humiliates? Or are you going to be part of the age that he honors? Because you're in him. Because you put your faith and trust in him. The Sadducees were humiliated. They were shamed before Christ. Those who put their trust in him, who put their faith in him, will be honored, will be glorified with him, who are now creatures of a new age. Not defined by regulations, not defined by restraints, not defined by laws, not defined by duties, not defined on, well, that's what you're supposed to do. You will be defined by only one thing, your worship of God completely. Completely. That will define your existence. And that does define your existence if you put your faith in Christ because you're a person of the new age. Do you want to be a person of the old age which Christ humiliates? or the person of a new age, which initiated in Christ. Let's pray.